When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. For as long as humans have been looking at the night sky, the planet Mars has fascinated us. From ancient Athens to Baghdad, from Copernicus to Galileo to Kepler, astronomers have made observations and speculations about Mars's movements in the night sky. And then of course there's its colour, the red planet, associated with war and death and bloodshed in so many civilizations. Although... The surface of the red planet is, is a dark grey. Hmm. It carries a lot of dust in the atmosphere, uh, which reflects, gives a, a red, ready hue, so the sunsets on Mars would all be very beautiful and, and red. But the, the surface itself, when you're on the ground, is probably more of a grey colour. This is Dr Mary Burke. I am Dr Mary Burke. I am located in the Department of Geography in Trinity College in Dublin. I am an Earth and Planetary Geomorphologist. And a geomorphologist is somebody who studies the dynamic uh, surface of planets. So I study the dynamic surface of planet Earth and planet Mars. Dr Burke, like so many others, is fascinated by the red, or maybe grey, planet and what lies on its surface. But for centuries, while we could accurately track and record the movements of the planet, glimpsing its surface was simply not possible. That was until 1877, a year in which a series of events occurred that would spark a global fascination with Mars. Soon, everyone had an opinion about the planet. The most famous American astronomer of the time became a household name. Life on Mars was front-page news. So let's go back to 1877. Astronomers across the world were fixing their telescopes on Mars. Telescopes that, after centuries of developments, were finally powerful enough to reach such a distance. And because Mars was at its closest point to Earth, something that only happens every 15 to 17 years, they had the first chance in human history of really seeing the surface of Mars. Asaph Hall, an American astronomer, was able to discover that Mars in fact had two moons. And in Italy, Giovanni Schiaparelli looked at the planet and observed polar ice caps, what appeared to be seas and lakes and perhaps vegetation. He also saw what seemed to be straight lines crisscrossing the surface. He called them canali, the Italian for channels or canals. But it was the latter idea that was, understandably, more intriguing to the general public. Maybe these really were canals. They were artificial, built by someone or something. Maybe there was not just life, but intelligent life on Mars. Schiaparelli himself remained ambiguous on whether the canali really suggested life as such. But his observations sparked decades of speculation. How much water was on the planet? Were the dark patches, which seemed to reappear every summer, in fact, vegetation? What was the Martian atmosphere like? And, of course, did the presence of straight lines prove the existence of intelligent life? One theory was that Mars was a dying world, a red, dusty planet whose water and inhabitants were dwindling. The canals were an attempt to channel water from the melting polar ice caps to irrigate the planet. An image of Mars was formed in the public imagination, one that would drive speculation about the planet for decades to come. Of all the names associated with these canals and with life on Mars, there's one which stands out above all others. This is Percival Lowell. Lowell's a fascinating character. He was from a very wealthy Boston family. He 
graduated from Harvard with a distinction in maths and then used his wealth to travel extensively. He spent a lot of time in Asia, particularly in Japan, and he published several books on Japanese life and culture. When he returned to the US, he became fascinated by astronomy, and he read Schiaparelli and everyone else who was writing about Mars and the canals. Lowell didn't do things in half measures, and so, unlike your average astronomer perhaps, he didn't simply go and use one of the already established telescopes in existence at that time. He built his own observatory. He set it up in Flagstaff in Arizona, a perfect location for an observatory, as he regularly pointed out, with its still, dry desert air. He took these straight lines um, and mapped, his, using his own telescope, his own observatory that he set up, drew up these maps of an extensive network um, where he imagined, or where he saw and then built this idea of this civilization on Mars that was capable of engineering large uh, structures that would transport water from a water ice cap. That's correct, it is a H2O water ice cap at the North Pole of Mars um, and at the South Pole of Mars and had this network of canals that would uh, move the water to uh, where this uh, extraterrestrial civilization actually lived. These maps are really interesting, they're really detailed. I put some of them on the website if you want to have a look as well. He published several books on the subject, the first of which, simply called Mars, in 1895, laid out the theory of the dying planet. Lots of other astronomers observed the canals as well, although many of them argued that they didn't prove intelligent life. They were a natural phenomenon, perhaps more like channels. Some thought that maybe the canals were a trick of the eye, maybe there really wasn't anything there at all. But Lowell was convinced, and he had well-reasoned rebuttals for many of the arguments against his theory. Now, there's a temptation to see Lowell as an eccentric amateur astronomer who clung on to an idea long after the professionals had moved on. But this isn't actually very accurate. Lowell had a world-class observatory in an unrivaled location. He had a Harvard maths degree and was non-resident professor of astronomy at MIT. He was a diligent researcher and his findings were taken seriously. As Dr. Burke points out, There were other important things that he did. Like he was the first astronomer to decide to place an observatory uh, for the reasons um, of great making great observations of space, so in high altitudes, in a cloudless sky, in a desert area like in Flagstaff in Arizona. And he also set up all of the instruments that were required for the discovery of the planet Pluto, which is why Pluto's is named apparently after him in terms of the PL, is named after Percival Lowell. So he was respected by his peers. Many of them just strongly opposed his incredibly controversial theory. In fairness, the canals of Mars, if they really were canals, would be the greatest scientific discovery of all time, intelligent life on another planet. The scientific debates raged on, and the public grew more fascinated. And they were particularly fascinated with Lowell. His books are very accessible. They're like the best popular science writing of today. Clear, well-reasoned arguments aimed at the lay reader. His lectures were attended by huge numbers of people, and he regularly announced his sensational results to the press, who were only too happy to report and expand on them. His name became familiar across the US and further afield. And so, Percival Lowell's Mars became the version in the public imagination, and fiction soon followed. Authors who wrote about Mars in this period started writing not about a magical, fantastic location where anything could be imagined, but about Mars as a real place. 
Across the world, fictional characters travel to the Red Planet. In France, the famous astronomer Camille Flammarion wrote tales set on Mars. In Ireland, there was Robert Cromie's A Plunge Into Space, Alexander Bogdanov's Red Star in Russia, Kurt Laswitz's Outside Planeten in Germany. Numerous American science fiction stories were set on Mars. Most famously, Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author of Tarzan, set his John Carter novels on Barsoom, his Martian name for Mars. Burroughs' Barsoom was strongly influenced by Lowell's Mars, as was H.G. Wells' work. When Wells speculated about what the inhabitants of Mars might look like, he explicitly noted his debt to Lowell at the outset. In The War of the Worlds, the most influential alien invasion novel ever written, the Martians who arrive on Earth come from Lowell's Mars. Speculation, both scientific and fictional, continued throughout the early decades of the 20th century. When Lowell died in 1916, his theories were still prominent, but as the decades went on, the canals were completely discredited. More powerful telescopes were developed and they didn't confirm Lowell's findings. Then, in the 1960s and 70s, the Mariner missions finally revealed a picture of the surface of Mars. No canals, no vegetation, no advanced Martian civilizations. Lowell's vision of Mars was, in fact, an illusion. An optical illusion, in fact, that a lot of these so-called straight lines were shown in subsequent kind of work that was done or experiments that were run that if you put, if you have a series of dark patches in close proximity to each other, you can look at them with enough intensity and see a straight line joining those. So it was an optical illusion. There are dark and bright patches on Mars. Um, And now that we have the very high resolution uh, satellites sending back data, we can identify pretty much the dark ones or the low albedo, as they're referred to, as being areas of more dust. But just because we now know what the surface of Mars really looks like, it doesn't mean curiosity has in any way waned. In fact, Curiosity is the name of NASA's Mars rover exploring the planet right now. And Lowell's curiosity played a huge part in sparking an ongoing interest in the possibilities of life on Mars. As a scientist working for NASA, I found that it was continuing on right through the modern missions because periodically we have all, all planetary scientists have received emails from people saying, this is an image um, which says to me that there's some civilization still today living on Mars, whether it is the so-called face on Mars or pyramids on Mars or... Even up to 10 years ago, there was an idea of worms on Mars living in these long, sinuous canals, sorry, whoops, channels. But they were saying that there were worms moving through canals on Mars, but they were just, they they were channels, they were sinuous channels that were formed by water that had ribs in them, which were sand dunes that looked like the back of a ribbed worm, for example. At this stage, we're unfortunately not going to find any Martians wandering around the planet, but... Mars does contain water, a key ingredient in life, and it may well have contained life in the past. There is a lot of water on Mars. There's two very large ice caps at the North and South Pole, and underneath the surface there's quite a a high proportion of frozen water in the subsoil. And there may even be lenses of aquifers frozen, um, and even in liquid form, further deep in in the crust. Um, And the most recent mission, known as as the the high-rise instrument on Mars, One of the most recent missions, which is a very high resolution imager, has detected seasonally flowing dark streaks down warm crater walls. Now, warm is a relative term. It's above freezing temperatures. And they've proposed that these are liquid water. It might be salty water, but it's liquid water flowing every time it gets sufficiently warm on on Mars. And so you have um, H2O 
on today on the surface of Mars and certainly in terms of the geology there's plenty of evidence for flowing water in the past even some ideas around oceans in, in the past certainly in the northern hemisphere and large lakes so I'm open to the idea that there were the conditions for a habitable environment on Mars at some point in its history definitely in early in its history um, and later than maybe or maybe we've got it all wrong of course there is this idea that we are Martians that we, there is this theory called panspermia, that um, when you realise early in the solar system, all of the planets were formed in a very violent way by impact and bombardment. And so there was this period of uh, material being ejected from planetary bodies. And so we have on our planet meteorites that came from Mars. We have rocks that came from Mars. And so there is a theory that these rocks might have carried early life forms into early Earth, and that's how life started on Earth. And of course, there is another way of discovering Martians. Ray Bradbury's 1950 short story collection, The Martian Chronicles, is one of the last fictional Mars tales to be set on a explicitly Lowell-inspired Mars. In the final story, The Million Year Picnic, a family has escaped a nuclear war-ravaged Earth and set up a life on Mars. The children are eager to see some Martians, and the father promises that he'll show them some very soon. So, shortly afterwards, as they sail down a Martian canal, he asks them to look down into the water. And the Martians are there, staring back at them their own reflections in the water. Carl Sagan once noted that Mars has become a kind of mythic arena onto which we've projected our earthly hopes and fears. This has been true for a very long time. Mars's red colour prompted us to imagine it as a planet of war and bloodshed. Its canals gave us the chance to imagine an extraterrestrial intelligent species. Today, its pristine surface, never touched by humans, allows for comparisons with how we're treating our own planet. The canals, in the end, were an illusion, as science-fictional as any other tale of the Red Planet. But Lowell inspired something that hasn't gone away. Science inspires fiction just as fiction inspires science. The imagination is as important in one as it is in the other. And this circle continues, prompting us to think far beyond Earth to better understand our own world. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you very much for listening. If this is the first episode you've heard, there's a growing collection of other episodes ready to listen to wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe and you won't miss future episodes. They're out every two weeks on a Monday. This show is entirely created, recorded, edited and promoted by me here in Dublin. I absolutely love doing it, but it takes a huge amount of time. So if you like the show, you can help me out in any number of small ways. You could spread the word, tell your friends, like the show on Facebook. You could also leave a review on iTunes, which takes maybe 30 seconds and really helps more people find the show. Or you can really help the show by making a small donation on my Patreon page, where you can get some rewards and other nice things. All the links are on the Words to That Effect website, which is wttepodcast.com. I have some great photos there as well of Lowell's Observatory and the maps of the canals, so have a look. Special thanks this week to Dr. Mary Burke. There are links to her research and blog and the website and some other resources to find out more about Mars. More great Irish music as well this week from the Jimmy Cake. They've just released an excellent new album, Tough Love, so go check them out. Links are on the website too. And while you're there, you can have a browse of the growing collection of articles. Every week I post one or two short pieces related to the latest episode and uh, you can have a read and also sign up to the newsletter as well. And finally, if you want to get in touch, the show is on Facebook and I'm on Twitter at C-E-D-Read, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. 
And that's it. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.